This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Sweetheart Killers, and we're discussing couples who kill together. So far, we've been talking about male-female couples. In crimes committed by male-female teams, we often see that the perpetrators are not always treated the same. In particular, we often see the courts and parole boards going more easily on the female of the pair. We saw this in the Coleman and Brown case, where Coleman received a death sentence while his girlfriend, while initially receiving the same sentence, ultimately had her sentence commuted to life in prison. In this episode, we'll go a little further back in time, to the 1950s, to tell the story of two teenagers in love who went on a killing spree that shocked the nation and then divided Americans into two camps. One side, who thought the young girl was a willing accomplice in the murders. Others, unable to believe a young girl could be guilty of such crimes, instead called her a victim of her murderous boyfriend. I'll give you the whole story, and you can decide. This is Chapter 3 of Sweetheart Killers, Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate. Monday, January 27th, 1958. Lincoln, Nebraska. 62-year-old Pansy Street was feeling anxious. She had not heard from her daughter, Velda Bartlett, for almost a week. Velda was the mother of three daughters. Her first two children, Barbara, now married and a new mother herself, and 14-year-old Carol were born to her and her first husband, whom she divorced in 1951. She was now married to Marion Bartlett, 22 years her senior, and they had one daughter together, two-year-old Betty Jean. Pansy, who lived not far away, was used to seeing or speaking to her daughter on a daily basis, but now she had not heard from her in nearly a week. She'd had some peculiar reports from her granddaughter, Barbara, and her family, who'd also been trying to contact the family that previous weekend. On Saturday, her son-in-law, Bob Van Bush, and Barbara had gone at Barbara's insistence to see why she hadn't heard from her mother since earlier that week. Velda was supposed to stop by with pictures she'd taken of Bob and Barb's newborn baby, and they hadn't heard hide nor hair from her. When they'd arrived, 14-year-old Carol had answered the door. However, she would not let them in, telling them that everyone was sick with the flu. She looked disheveled and worn out, and they could believe that she was ill. Barb wanted to go in and see if they needed anything, but since they'd brought the baby with them, Carol said they wouldn't want the baby to catch the flu, so they shouldn't enter. When they pressed her, she snapped at them and said, "'Go away if you know what's best,' Go away if you don't want Mother to get hurt. Carol became very agitated, and Barbara, while still wondering what she could mean, told Bob that they should leave and come back later. Later that day, Bob spoke with Rodney Starkweather, a friend of his whose brother Charles had been dating Carol. Charlie and Bob had also been good friends since junior high school. When Bob told Rodney about the strange visit to the Bartlett's, Rodney told him that Charlie hadn't been home for a few days either. Now the two men wondered if Charlie and Carol were up to something. They'd been seeing each other for nearly a year, and Carol's mother and stepfather weren't happy about her dating a boy almost five years older than herself. The Bartlett's also thought Charlie was shiftless. He had dropped out of school in the ninth grade and sometimes worked with his brother Rodney as a garbage man and sometimes hauling newspapers. He swaggered around looking like a James Dean wannabe with a flat-top rebel-without-a-cause hairdo, rolled-up jeans, motorcycle boots, and a cigarette constantly dangling between his lips. Every parent's nightmare. 
Bob and Rodney decided to take a trip together to the Bartlett's house on Saturday evening. Again, Carol came to the door alone. She looked like she'd just woken up. She said everyone was sleeping. Bob tried to push his way in, but Carol was surprisingly strong and blocked his entrance with the door, again making the strange statement about her mother's life being in danger. She then told them to come back on Monday. Now Bob decided to call the police. He finally convinced an officer to take a drive out to the home to check it out. At 9.30 that evening, two officers arrived at the Bartlett's door. Carol answered the door in her nightgown. They told her they had a report of some trouble at the home. She assured them that there was no trouble, just a sick family who were all sleeping. She said that the only reason her brother-in-law probably called them was because they didn't get along. The officers, not seeing a problem and not wanting to wake the sick family, left. While Rodney was with Bob that day at the Bartlett's, Charlie had called his family's house twice. The first time, he said he'd left a shotgun he'd borrowed from Rodney at their friend Harvey Griggs Barn. He also said he was stranded at the Conoco gas station and needed a ride. A few minutes later, he'd called back to say that, by the way, Carol's family was sick and he'd stop by to drop off some groceries, but they shouldn't go over there. Bob and Rodney then went to look for the shotgun. They found it where Charlie said he'd left it, but it was damaged. The butt plate was broken and the piece was missing. They then went to the Conoco station, but Charlie wasn't there. They were also told that he hadn't been there at all that day. On Sunday the 26th, Guy Starkweather, Charlie's father, sent his 16-year-old daughter Levita to the Bartlett's. Levita was a friend of Carol's, and he thought maybe Carol would tell her what was going on. Carol put her off at the door again with the story that the family had the flu. Levita left, but came back that evening. You're lying, Carol Ann, she said, and then asked her what was really going on. Then Carol told her that Charlie was there with another man who had a Tommy gun. I think they're going to rob a bank, she told her. Levita ran home to tell her father. But Guy didn't believe her, now thinking Carol was just making up stories, and he let it go. It was on Monday that Carol's grandmother, Pansy, decided to take matters into her own hands. She arrived in a cab at 9 a.m. that morning to the house on Belmont Avenue. She noticed that the front door was open several inches, but the screen door was closed, and when she tried it, it was locked. On the screen was a note, rife with misspellings, that read, Stay away. Everybody is sick with the flu. It was signed, Miss Bartlett. Pansy called in to her daughter and to Carol. After a couple of minutes, Carol came to the door. Open this door, Carol, and let me in, she insisted. Carol seemed nervous and fidgety to her grandmother. Carol then backed a few steps into the front room and said, Go away, Grandma. Oh, Granny, go away. Mom's life will be in danger if you don't. Pansy pleaded with her to let her in. But Carol now remained silent, just staring at her grandmother. Now, Pansy wasn't just anxious, but angry. She told Carol that she knew her boyfriend was in there, and she was going to get a police officer with a search warrant. I'll get in there one way or another, she shouted at Carol, before storming off. She then went to the police. At first, the police didn't want to get involved. They figured it was just a domestic dispute, or some family misunderstanding. But when Pansy continued to insist and wouldn't leave, they finally agreed to go out and have a talk with Carol. But when they arrived, there was no one home. The house was dark and locked and seemed to be deserted. Pansy gave them her permission to go in, and they found a window unlocked and entered. No one was home, and there didn't seem to be anything out of place, certainly no evidence of a crime. They drove Pansy home and told her to mind her own business next time. Also on Monday, 
Guy Starkweather had tried to alert the police about something being amiss with his son and his girlfriend. Charlie's car, he discovered, was missing from the Griggs garage, where he usually had it parked. He wanted them to put a warrant out for Charlie Starkweather, but they told him they had no cause as no crime had been committed. They smelled liquor on Guy's breath and told him to go home and sleep it off. On Monday, the Lincoln Police Department had a third visit from a concerned family member of the Bartlett's. Bob Von Bush asked to speak to the police captain this time. He asked him if he'd tried to find out anything about the strange goings-on at the Bartlett house. The captain told him they'd called Marion Bartlett's employer, who told him that someone had called a few days earlier, telling them that he was sick and would be out for a few days. What probably happened, he assured Bob, was that the family decided to go on a vacation and left Carol home. Once they were gone, she probably snuck her boyfriend in and didn't want you all to find out. Bob told him that was ridiculous. First of all, they would never go off and leave Carol. And second, Marion's car was still sitting in the driveway. How did he go on vacation? On foot? The captain now got angry with Bob and told him to leave the Bartlett's alone. He didn't want to hear any more about it. Bob left and picked up Rodney. They were going back to the Bartlett's home, and they were going to find out what was going on once and for all. At 4.30 p.m. on Monday, January 27th, Bob Von Bush and Rodney Starkweather arrived at the Bartlett's house at 924 Belmont Avenue. It was locked tight, and there was no noise or movement inside. They saw the note taped to the front door and thought it odd that it was signed Miss Bartlett. Who the heck was Miss Bartlett? Velda would have signed it Mrs. Bartlett, and the only other female Bartlett in the home was two-year-old Betty Jean. Carol's last name was Fugate, like her father. They consulted with each other and reluctantly agreed to go around the back. For some reason, they were both hesitant to do so, but they thought that the police probably hadn't, so they slowly made their way to the back of the house. It was 1958, but this was a poor neighborhood, and most of the homes still didn't have indoor plumbing. Nor did the Bartlett's. There was an outhouse at the end of the yard behind the house. As they approached it, Rodney said, Do you smell that? Yeah, it's an outhouse. Of course I smell it, Bob snapped. For some reason, he felt really spooked now. Even so, Rodney said, it doesn't smell right. Bob told him to shut up and reach for the handle to open up the outhouse door. As he looked inside, he sprang back saying, oh my God, and slammed the door. Christ, what is it? Rodney asked. Velda, Betty Jean, Bob stammered. They're dead. She's halfway down the toilet. Betty's on the seat. They ran to contact the police. Within minutes, the police captain and several officers arrived at the Bartlett home. What they found would haunt them for years. Velda Bartlett was wrapped up in a blood-soaked quilt. She'd been wedged headfirst into the toilet hole, like someone had attempted to hide her body in there, but soon realized it would not fit. She was left sticking legs up. Beside her on the wood seat was two-year-old Betty, dead in a cardboard box. They soon found the body of 57-year-old Marion Bartlett in the chicken coop. He was also wrapped in bloody rags and a quilt. Both Marion and Velda had been shot with a small caliber weapon. Velda had also been stabbed several times. Betty Jean had not been shot or stabbed, and an autopsy would determine that she died of blunt force trauma to the head. Carol and Charlie were nowhere to be found. At just after 5.30 p.m., an all-points bulletin was issued for Charles Starkweather, 19 years old, 5 foot 5 inches tall, dark red hair, green eyes, believed to be wearing blue jeans and a black leather jacket, and driving a 1949 Ford. 
He may have taken a hostage, one Carol Ann Fugate, age 14, 5 foot 1 inches tall, 105 pounds, dark brown hair, and blue eyes. But what they didn't know was they weren't looking for Charles Starkweather for three murders, but four. Charles Raymond Starkweather was born November 24, 1938. He was one of seven children born to Guy and Helen Starkweather of Lincoln, Nebraska. They were poor but hardworking, as were many of the families in the neighborhood. The Starkweathers were loving parents to their seven children. Neighbors remember Guy speaking with pride of Charles when he was young. He said he was quiet and polite and a good helper to his parents and siblings. No one knew of any animosity or abuse in the family. Charlie later would say that he had a happy childhood until he began school. Charlie was small in comparison to the other boys his age. He would only reach five foot five inches tall. He also spoke with a slight speech impediment when he entered kindergarten, had red hair and freckles, and was bow-legged. Like many children, Charlie experienced some teasing, but unlike most children, Charlie took everything very much to heart. He said that he believed he was singled out by the other children, and they looked down on him and treated him unfairly. At first, Charlie didn't respond at all. He would slink away and sulk, refusing to participate. But soon, for every real or perceived slight, Charlie began to lash out with his fists. Charlie would write that early on, when he was teased, he told himself that someday I'd pay them all back, and an overwhelming sense of outrage grew. I wanted revenge upon the world and its human race. His reputation for fighting would follow him throughout his school years. While he was tested at normal intelligence, he was placed in the dull-to-normal track and left back one year in school to repeat the sixth grade. It wasn't discovered until he was 15 that he had severe myopia and could see almost nothing more than a few feet away, including the lessons the teacher would write on the chalkboard. But not wanting to be teased or thought of as dumb, he didn't tell anyone. By the time he was in high school, he was so far behind, he was practically illiterate. While he was short and bow-legged, he was strong and even excelled in some sports. The coach even made him an assistant, but the power went to his head, and he treated the other players harshly and was demoted. Charlie was always hypersensitive to any slights and felt embarrassed about a myriad of things, his height, his poor eyesight, his school failure, and his lack of money and possessions. He believed his classmates looked down on his hand-me-down clothes and judged him. The truth was that most of the kids in his school lived in similar circumstances. Some had more than others, surely, but it was unlikely he was the only one who wore hand-me-downs or sometimes went without. There were two things that Charlie loved, guns and cars. But between the two, Charlie would say, I'd rather hear the crack of a firearm than have or drive the finest car in the whole wide world. Even so, he would take to cars and even began to drive competitively in demolition derbies as a teen. In these contests, sometimes called chicken races, Young men would drive their beat-up cars in a track at full speed towards each other. The last person left with a running vehicle was declared the winner. Charlie was a daredevil, and his pride wouldn't allow him to be the first to swerve out of the way of danger. He sometimes would win a race, receiving a few dollars as a prize. He'd met his very best friend, Bob Von Bush, in the ninth grade. Bob was bigger than Charlie and considered a tough guy. It wasn't long before Charlie tangled with him, and they got into a knockdown dragout fight. Bob, impressed with the toughness of the much smaller boy, quickly gave him respect as a decent fighter, and they became fast friends. They even split the cost of an old Ford that they used for drag racing and driving over the border to Kansas to score beer. 
At the age of 16, Charlie had had enough of school. He said he was tired of waiting, tired of having nothing and being nobody. He dropped out of the ninth grade and took a job alongside his brother Rodney as a garbage collector, making $35 a week. He soon switched to bailing papers and loading trucks at the Western Newspaper Union's warehouse, but he felt slighted there as well. He said the bosses were always watching him and judging him harshly, while praising the other workers who were less skilled than him. Guess it's because they talked better than I did, he would say, because they had better places to sleep at night. But his manager at the newspaper would testify later that Charlie had to be told what to do and how to do it two or three times before he'd understand. Of all the employees in the warehouse, he was the dumbest man we had, he'd say. Charlie desperately seemed to be seeking respect, validation, and acceptance, although he didn't want to do much to earn it. He just wanted it given to him. The longer he was denied it, the angrier he got. He hated everyone and everything by the time he was closing in on the end of his teen years. And then he found two things that he did care about. One was James Dean, and the other was Carol Fugate. By 1956, James Dean became a symbol of rebellion for American teenagers. Playing the title character in the 1955 film Rebel Without a Cause, Dean swaggered through the movie wearing a black leather jacket, blue jeans, a white t-shirt, and a duckbill hairstyle, the same uniform Charlie Starkweather would adopt. James Dean was also a fan of hot rods and would die in 1956 behind the wheel of his Porsche that he was scheduled to race later that day. He had been speeding and had even received a ticket earlier that day. Another car turned into an intersection in front of him. Dean was unable to stop and plowed into the driver's side and was killed almost instantly. Dean was the epitome of coolness to Charlie Starkweather and took the motto, live fast and die young, to heart. Charlie's fateful introduction to Carol Fugate would be facilitated by his good friend Bob Von Bush in 1956. Bob had been dating Barbara Fugate, who he would eventually marry and he told Charlie he should meet her younger sister, Carol. Carol was only 13 years old at the time, but Bob said she looked five years older. Charlie met her and liked her and asked her out soon after. Carol accepted. Before long, word got around that Carol and Charlie were going steady or dating each other exclusively. Charlie felt comfortable with Carol. She didn't put on airs like some other girls, who Charlie also believed looked down on him. Carol preferred to wear jeans and men's plaid shirts, not girly dresses like other girls. Carol, like Charlie, had also failed a grade and was considered a slow learner. She was also poor and additionally from a broken home. She didn't care for her stepfather, Marion, and fought quite a bit with her mother, especially since she began dating Charlie. Her mother and stepfather didn't like their barely teenage daughter seeing a boy who was practically a grown man, but Carol would defy them and continue seeing Charlie. Carol was sassy by others' definition. She could swear like a sailor and had a stubborn streak a mile wide. She also felt slighted, and she shared with Charlie that she felt her little sister Betty Jean was given more attention and had nudged her out of her role as baby of the family. Carol quickly made Charlie the center of her world, and she became his. Charlie felt, for the first time, there was someone who saw him as special, someone who didn't judge him. Carol seemed to overlook everything that he saw as lacking, his height, his poverty, his bow legs, and made him her own personal rebel without a cause. Charlie, for his part, immersed himself in this role to impress Carol, exaggerating even more his swagger and tough persona. Carol was impressed by his looks, the fact that he had a car, and most likely, 
the way her parents objected to him. What teenage girl doesn't become even more infatuated with the bad boy that her parents can't stand? Parents, take this as a lesson. It's a story as old as time. In fact, Charlie believed the only good thing at that time in his life was Carol. He was stuck in a dead-end job, had no money and no prospects. It didn't help that Charlie's attitude kept him from succeeding almost anywhere he went. He made excuses when he was corrected by his employers. It was always somebody else's fault that he didn't succeed. But when he was with Carol, he felt good about himself. She thought the sun and the moon set on him and even fought with her parents to continue to see him. He decided that he needed Carol in his life to the exclusion of everything else. It was time, Charlie thought, for them to make it official. He and Carol needed to get married and get out of their one-horse town. With Carol by his side, he believed the sky was the limit. Carol had learned to drive before she was even a teen. It was another thing Charlie loved about her. Most girls wouldn't dare, but Carol was fearless. And another thing Carol loved about Charlie was that he let her drive his car. He had a 1949 blue Ford that his father had helped him purchase. Carol got into a minor accident one day, and Guy Starkweather forbid his son to let her drive it again. Charlie fought with his father, and Guy then threw him out of the house. Charlie moved into a room in the same building where his brother Rodney and his wife Barb lived. Charlie struggled to keep up the rent, sometimes getting locked out by the landlord when he was behind on payments. Now Charlie had a plan for him and Carol to get married and move to Washington State, where his brother Leonard was living and working. Charlie and Carol even secretly opened up a joint bank account together at the First National Bank of Lincoln. Charlie began talking about his plans with Carol, first lying and telling the other guys at the newspaper union that they'd gotten married. They didn't believe him. Carol was underage. Well, anyway, Charlie told them, I'm going to be a father. Carol's pregnant. This was also a lie. But the rumors got out, and her parents found out about it. Her stepfather, Marion, who never liked Charlie in the first place, told him to stay away from her. Velda felt that Charlie brought out the worst in Carol. She'd become more stubborn and defiant since she'd met him, fought with her mother frequently about seeing Charlie, and was disrespectful to her stepfather. Pretty typical behaviors for a teenager who believed herself to be in love for the first time. But the fact that Charlie was so much older and now was talking about marrying their 14-year-old was the last straw. Marion told Charlie that if he did marry Carol, they would have the marriage annulled and charge him with statutory rape. Charlie's outlaw fantasies collided with his teenage infatuation and created a lethal combination. Charlie needed to get some money so he and Carol could get out of town, and he also wanted to live up to Carol's attraction to his tough guy persona. So he devised a plan. On Saturday, November 30th, Charlie spent the day with Carol. He raced in a demolition derby at the racetrack that afternoon. He won a small prize, but beyond that, he was more excited that Carol was there to see him best all the other drivers that day. Afterwards, he took her to dinner, where they both splurged by ordering steaks. Charlie had a porterhouse, while Carol chose a filet mignon, and they both had pie a la mode for dessert. They then went to the drive-in to see The Enemy Below, starring Robert Mitchum. Afterwards, Charlie dropped Carol off at home before her curfew of 11 p.m. Charlie stopped for a couple of beers before heading back to his apartment. There, he loaded his 12-gauge Remington, slipping three shells into the magazine. He grabbed a pair of leather gloves, a canvas money bag, a hunter's cap with ear flaps, and a red bandana before heading out. It was 2.30 a.m. on December 1st. 
Charlie's destination was the Crest gas station on the Cornhusker Highway. The highway bisected the state from east to west and was dotted with filling stations and small stores where travelers could stop to fill up their tanks, fix a flat, or purchase some provisions for the road. Many of them were open 24 hours for the convenience of travelers. 21-year-old Robert Colvert was a newlywed and expecting his first child. He'd began working the overnight shift at the Crest Station two weeks earlier, after recently being discharged from the Navy. Charlie pulled into the Crest Station just before 3 a.m. that morning. Colvert was alone in the station, no other customers or employees. In all, Charlie would come in three times that night. The outlaw seemed to be somewhat hesitant to complete his mission. The first time, he purchased a pack of cigarettes from Colvert. He then drove about a quarter mile down the road, parked, and smoked a cigarette before heading back. The second time, Charlie simply asked for a pack of gum, paying the five cents for the item before leaving. Charlie then screwed up his courage a third time and returned a few minutes later. He pulled the bandana over his face, put the hunting cap on his head, and headed into the station. Odd, since the attendant had to be able to recognize the rest of his clothes, and perhaps even his voice, from the two prior visits. This time, Colvert was in the garage working on a car. Charlie snuck up behind him and placed the shotgun between his shoulder blades. He waved the startled employee toward the office. Colvert had been instructed by the owner, if he should ever be robbed, he should not try to be a hero, but hand over whatever the thief wanted. Colvert complied. He emptied the small amount of money, including change, into the canvas bag Charlie handed him. Charlie then told him to open the safe. I can't, Colvert answered. I don't know the combination. Honest, mister, if I could, I would. Charlie then said, okay, let's go. You're coming with me. We're going for a little ride. Charlie held the gun on him while directing him to his Ford and then instructed him to get into the driver's side. Charlie couldn't drive and hold the weapon on him at the same time. He had Colvert drive about a mile outside of town, just past a railroad crossing before telling him to pull over and instructed him to get out. This story is Charlie's version. Colvert could never tell his side. Why Charlie abducted him in the first place is unknown. Perhaps he thought he'd leave him far enough away from help to give Charlie time to get away. But this is unlikely. Charlie was well known at the Crest Station. He came in often to purchase gas and cigarettes, and the owner knew him by sight. It would only take Colvert giving him a description of the short, red-headed, bow-legged robber before Charlie would be picked up and arrested. No, more likely, it was Charlie's intention all along to leave no witnesses. But as would be typical of Charlie, he would spin a tale that implied he had no choice but to commit murder. He would do this time and time again, and like the rest of the stories he told about his life, nothing was ever his fault. In the process of claiming self-defense, he always portrayed himself as the tough guy who went out over the aggressor. In Charlie's version, Colvert made a wild grab for the gun, and they scuffled in the middle of the road. He shot himself the first time, Charlie said. He had a hold of the gun from the front, and I cocked it and the thing went off. What we do know from the crime scene is that Robert Colvert was hit in the upper body by the powerful weapon. The blast would have knocked him backwards and off his feet. Even so, somehow Colvert was able to struggle onto all fours. Charlie then pumped the shotgun a second time and fired a second shot into the back of the man's head. He left Colvert's body lying in the middle of the road and drove off. The dead man's body was found the next day at 5 a.m., and soon after tied to the missing employee of the Crest Filling Station. The deputies were then given the grim task of telling his young expectant wife that her husband was never coming home. The police had no suspects. Charlie changed the tires on his Ford, 
knowing that the cops might try to identify tire tracks, and also painted the blue Ford black. The holidays passed and Charlie spent most of the money, just over $100, from the robbery, making good on his back rent, purchasing Christmas gifts for Carol and his family, and living it up. By the new year, he was broke and locked out of his apartment. He was living in a rented garage in his car. Now he was in search of a job again, but couldn't get hired. He still wanted to marry Carol and believed that he'd be more likely to be hired if he was a married man. For the time being, he'd sometimes help his brother Rodney on his garbage route for a few dollars. On Monday, January 20th, Charlie visited the Bartlett's once again to convince them to let him marry Carol. Marion had really had enough of this punk who he knew would drag his stepdaughter down with him. How are you going to take care of her, he yelled at Charlie. You haven't got a job. You haven't even looked. Charlie became angry when Marion began to tell Charlie that he was a bum and he and Carol would be living in the street. Marion then told him that even if he had a job, he couldn't marry Carol. Marion told him that he was done seeing Carol. He needed to leave his house and never come back. When Charlie yelled back at him to go to hell, Marion picked him up by the collar and threw him out on his ass. Charlie was furious. The next day, Charlie still locked out of his apartment, tried to get in to fetch his hunting rifle, but it was locked tight. He drove to Rodney's and asked to borrow his twenty-two, telling him that he was going hunting with Carol's father. Rodney thought this was odd, since everyone knew Marion didn't like Charlie, but he let it slide. He let him borrow the rifle that afternoon. Around 1 p.m., he drove to the Bartlett's. Velda was home, and Charlie gained entrance by telling her he had some carpet remnants that he'd picked up on his garbage route that he'd offered to give her. She seemed angry to see him there, but let him in. He also had the rifle with him. Velda was incredulous when Charlie asked, Does Mr. Bartlett still want to go hunting? She told him she really didn't think so. According to Charlie, they then got into a verbal altercation. Velda accused him of getting Carol pregnant and told him he was not welcome. Charlie continued to argue with her, and she slapped him. He yelled at her and ran out of the house. But as he drove away, he remembered that he'd left the rifle inside. When he returned a few minutes later, coming through the back door, Marion was in the kitchen, blocking his way. Get the hell out of my house, Marion demanded. Charlie fled through the front door. Before he stepped onto the front porch, Marion planted his boots squarely in Charlie's ass, pushing him the rest of the way down the steps. Charlie was humiliated and now vowed revenge. He drove to a payphone and called Marion Bartlett's employer. When the operator answered, he told her that Marion Bartlett would not be into work for the next few days. He's sick, Charlie told them. Charlie planned to pick up Carol from school at 3 p.m., but as he was leaving to get her, his transmission began to slip. He left the car in front of his friend's house and walked to the Bartlett's. By then, he figured Carol should be home. As he approached, he heard Carol and her mother arguing. They, of course, were arguing about Charlie. Her parents had undoubtedly told Carol about the fight earlier that day and once again forbade her to see him. Charlie walked through the door into this scene. Velda, seeing him again in her house, was furious. Charlie said she began to slap the shit out of him again. He struck her back this time, and she let out a cry. Marion then came charging into the room and towards Charlie. He grabbed Charlie by the neck and began trying to drag him out of the house. Charlie broke away and ran to Carol's room, where he had left the twenty-two. Charlie said when he came back into the room, Marion had a claw hammer raised to hit him. This would be a common story Charlie would tell. 
the other person always had a weapon on him, causing him to use deadly force. It's unlikely Marion had grabbed a hammer. It's more likely he just planned to grab Charlie as he'd done before, to drag him out of the house. It's also unlikely that he knew Charlie had a weapon stashed in Carol's room. Marion was hit with one bullet in the head. He collapsed on Carol's bedroom floor. Then, Charlie says, Carol came out of the bathroom and, saying nothing, went with Charlie back into the kitchen. There, Charlie said Velda had a butcher knife and was coming at him. He said Carol then grabbed the gun from him and threatened her mother to stay away. Not at all phased, apparently, Charlie said Velda came angrily at Carol and knocked her down. He then explained, to defend Carol, he grabbed the gun from her and shot her mother. Oh, and if you missed it, Charlie would have had to load the gun again between leaving Marion with a bullet hole in him and heading back toward the kitchen. The first bullet hit Velda in the face. And this next part I believe, because it sounds like pure instinct for a mother. Charlie reported that Betty Jean was across the room and was screaming and crying during all the commotion. Velda, he says, although hit once, never stopped and was heading towards her toddler. He then hit Velda with the butt of the rifle and she fell. He hit her one more time, and she stayed down. He turned towards the screaming toddler and hit her too in the head with the rifle butt, and she was also silent. It would turn out that Velda had also been stabbed several times. Who did this or for what purpose was never explained. Afterwards, Charlie, most likely with the help of Carol, set out to clean up the crime scene. They wrapped the bodies of Marion and Velda in sheets, rags, and quilts, tying them with a clothesline, and in Marion's case, with one of Carol's scarves. Charlie first thought of hiding the bodies in the basement, but knew they would start to emit an odor, so he decided keeping them outside in the frigid coal of the Nebraska winter would be best. He dragged Velda's body to the outhouse and tried to hide it in the toilet hole, but it didn't fit. He found a cardboard box in the kitchen where he put little Betty Jean's body and placed it in the outhouse as well. Marion's body was dragged to the chicken coop and left against a far wall, out of sight. Charlie and Carol then spent the next six days in the Bartlett house. From Tuesday through Sunday, they ate, slept, and watched TV just yards away from Carol's murdered family members. It wasn't until the family began to arrive on Saturday that they began to have a problem. And it wasn't until Carol's grandmother threatened to get a search warrant that following Monday that they decided to leave. Carol would later claim that she was held hostage by Charlie that entire week and afterwards as well but facts would prove that she'd had opportunities to contact someone or run away had she wanted to. Charlie made no less than three trips alone to the grocery store to buy food, and on one of those trips, he dumped the rifle for his brother Rodney to find. This was also when he called him to tell him where it was. There had also been a few visitors to the house that Carol could have signaled to the hostage situation. The milkman had stopped by as well as her friend who walked with her to school, and later in the week, Marion's boss, to see when he might be returning to work. Each time, she gave them the excuse that the family was sick and would not let them in the house. She even sent away the two armed officers who could have helped her if she was in danger. But when the family had had enough that weekend and began insistent on seeing Velda, they knew the jig was up. They soon left the house with Charlie's plan that they would head to Washington State, where they would live together happily ever after. Charlie and Carol grabbed a few things to take with them. Carol took a family photo album, and Charlie took a hunting knife and a 32 caliber gun he'd found in the house. He also took a sawed-off 410. By 10 a.m., they were on the road. Their first stop was to the town of Bennett, 
about 15 miles southeast of Lincoln. He sometimes hunted on the property of a farmer named August Meyer, but first Charlie stopped for ammunition. He didn't find any bullets for the 32 in the house, and he purchased more shells for the other weapons. The weather had been terrible that month. It was bitter cold, hitting six below some nights, but the previous snow had melted and turned to slush. Many of the unpaved roads turned into mud and slush pits. When they reached the turnoff into August Meyer's farm, they soon found themselves stuck in the mud up to the axles. August Meyer was 80 years old and had never been married. He lived on the property alone. Carol had visited the farm with Charlie in the past to hunt squirrels, and they had all gotten along fine. Again, we don't know why Charlie decided to go to Meyer's farm, or why he did what he did next. Charlie's version would defy logic. He'd say that August Meyer saw them and made them wait on the porch, not allowing them inside. Then he came out with his shotgun and threatened them, at which time Charlie shot him. What we know from Meyer's autopsy is that he was shot with the sawed-off shotgun at almost point-blank range in the back of the head. His body was then dragged to an outbuilding on the property and covered with an old blanket. They took three guns from Meyer's house, as well as about $100 found in a pouch. They took some dry clothes and a spade that Charlie used to try and dig out his car from the mud. They were finally able to extricate it and inched it back down the muddy road before the car slid into a ditch. Another farmer came along soon afterwards and asked if he could help. He tied a cable to link the Ford and his car's bumper and pulled it out. They were back on the road by 5 p.m. A bee on the lookout had been issued for Charles Starkweather by Nebraska State Police about the same time. They drove down the highway and stopped at a gas station for a road map and some shells for the 22 he had stolen from Meyer's house. Afterwards, for some reason, most likely because he had no plan, Charlie decided to head back to the Meyer farm. Halfway down the road, he changed his mind, turning the car around, and found himself stuck in the mud again. They both decided to head back to the road as it was freezing and getting dark. They took the guns with them. As they reached the main road, they saw headlights coming towards them. Charlie held the rifle behind his back, concealing it, and stuck out his thumb. Robert Jensen, 17, and his girlfriend Carol King, 16, were on a date. They were a couple of typical clean-cut American teens in the 1950s. Their dates usually consisted of grabbing a bite to eat at a burger stand or going for drives in Bob's 1954. Tonight, Carol jumped at the chance to spend some time with her boyfriend running errands, promising her mother she'd be home before her 10 p.m. curfew. They stopped at a service station for gas and to see if some tires were ready for Bob's car, but they weren't. So with time to kill, Bob and Carol decided to head out to a parking spot that was well-known to local teenagers and was adjacent to August Meyer's property. On the way there, they saw a young couple standing in the road. The boy had his thumb out. Bob thought he recognized him, and being a good guy, decided to stop and see if they needed any help. Charlie told him their car was stuck in the mud and the reverse gear was stripped. Bob offered to give them a ride into town. Once in the car, sitting in the back seat, Charlie asked Bob if he could drive him to a payphone. They pulled into a service station, but it was closed and the phone was locked up inside. Bob offered to take them to his house where they could place their call. Charlie then pressed the muzzle of the rifle against the back of Bob's head. Do what I tell you and you won't get hurt, he said. He directed Bob to an abandoned school. Bob asked him if he was going to leave them there because he needed the car. Charlie said yes. On the way there, either Charlie or Carol, they both later would accuse the other, made Bob hand over his wallet. 
they stole the $4 he had inside. Carol would later admit to holding a gun on the couple. This and the commission of the robbery alone would make Carol eligible for a life term in prison under Nebraska's felony murder rule. There was an old storm cellar for the district to use in case of weather emergencies. Kids in the area called it the cave. They had Bob stop the car about 20 paces from the cave and made them get out. Once again, Charlie would tell several versions of what happened, and Carol would have her own story. But this is what we do know. Bob Jensen was shot six times with the 22. All the shots were directed at the back of his head. His body was found at the bottom of the cellar stairs, face down. Carol King had been shot once with the bullet entering her head from the right side. There were drag marks on her back. Her body was found lying on top of Bob's. Her coat had been pulled up over her head. She was nude from the waist down. Her jeans and underwear were around her ankles. She had been stabbed several times in the groin. The knife that had stabbed her was never found. It did not match Charlie's hunting knife, as the cuts came from a narrow, double-edged blade. No semen was found on Carol King, but the nature of the stab wounds to her groin, one had punctured her cervix and penetrated the rectum, would be deemed sexual assault in itself. Charlie's version would have Bob grabbing for the barrel of the gun as he was directing him to the cellar door. Charlie then said he shot him, and Carol King began screaming. He said he shot her to shut her up. He told several versions. Sometimes Carol was involved, sometimes she wasn't. But the version that makes the most sense, and I'm piecing this together from several versions to make sense of it, is this. Charlie shot Bob where he stood, and he fell into the cellar. Most likely he was starting down the stairs following Charlie's order when he was shot. Carol King began to scream, and Charlie shot her like he said. Then he dragged her body down into the cellar. She may or may not have been dead at this point, but surely she was in the last minutes of life, if not. He only said one word about the state of Carol's undress when later asked what had happened. Temptation, he said. This is probably true. He had a young, attractive female at his mercy, and he began to pull off her clothes. He adamantly denied ever raping her, and because of the absence of semen, it seems to be true. Whether that was because he stopped himself, didn't have enough time, or whether Carol caught him before he could is unclear. Charlie would later say that he and Carol got into a fight. He said Carol King was still alive in the cellar. He had planned to leave her there. But when he got back to Bob's car, it was stuck in the mud. That crazy Nebraska mud. He left Carol with the gun to watch over Carol King and went to work on freeing the car. He then heard a shot from the cellar. Charlie's story would implicate Carol in the murder and sexual mutilation of Carol King because, he says, she was jealous. It is most likely that Charlie shot and killed both of the teens. However, it is possible that Carol did stab Carol King, as she lay either dead or dying, out of jealousy. Charlie and Carol then drove off in Robert Jensen's car. Late in the afternoon on Tuesday, August Meyer's body was found in his outhouse. A missing persons report for the two teens had been filed earlier that morning. Their bodies were found about 30 minutes after August Meyer's. Charlie and Carol's picture was plastered on the front page of the evening paper. The consensus was that the young girl had been taken against her will. No way could a 14-year-old be responsible for such horrible crimes, people said. The all-points bulletin for Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate was widened to include Wyoming, Kansas, and North and South Dakota. They were also looking for Charlie to be driving Bob Jensen's car. But surprisingly, Charlie and Carol had not left town. They were still in Lincoln, 
Charlie decided they needed to get another car and maybe more money. So on Tuesday, January 28th, Charlie drove Jensen's car into the country club section of town at about 8 a.m. Charlie was familiar with the neighborhood, having worked the garbage route in this section of town with the stately homes that belonged to the wealthy residents of Lincoln. He drove up a driveway that circled around the back of a two-story mansion on South 24th Street. The home belonged to a wealthy businessman named C. Lauer Ward. He lived there with his wife, Clara. Their 14-year-old son was away at boarding school. Also in the home that day was the Ward's housekeeper, 51-year-old Lillian Fenkel. Charlie took the rifle and went to the door. Lillian Fenkel opened the door and he shoved his way inside. He began to ask the housekeeper who else was in the home and if there was any money in the house. The frightened housekeeper, however, was deaf. She pointed to her ear and shook her head. She pointed to a notepad and a pencil near the telephone. Charlie began to write, but being nearly illiterate, it took him several moments to even scratch out, sit down, and shut up. A few minutes later, Clara Ward came downstairs to find the terrified housekeeper with a gun pointed at her. Charlie ordered Mrs. Ward to sit down as well. He then said he wasn't going to hurt them. They just needed to hide out there until dark. Then they would be tied up and they would leave. He then waved Carol inside. The couple spent the next six hours in the home. During that time, Mrs. Ward and Lillian made them breakfast. Charlie wanted waffles, and they took naps. Carol took Charlie's place watching the women while he slept. They also wrote out a badly misspelled confession letter that was later found in Charlie's pocket. Charlie was convinced they would be caught soon, and he, quote, wasn't going to be taken alive, and wanted to leave a record of what had happened at the Bartlett home. He made no mention of the four other murders. They also cut out newspaper clippings and photos from the Ward's morning newspaper. The clippings were later found in Carol's pocket. In them were the accounts of all the killings the pair were believed responsible for, including the murders of Carol's parents. What happened later is as confusing as the rest of the stories Charlie told, in that he changed the details several times, first absolving and then implicating Carol in the killings. In one version, Mrs. Ward emerged from a room with a twenty-two rifle and took a shot at him. She missed, and he then threw a knife at her, hitting her in the back. She was then tied to the bed, still alive. They also, at some point, tied up the maid in another bedroom, also lying on a bed. At about 6 p.m., Mr. Ward returned home. Charlie had switched the cars, hiding his car in the garage and parking Mrs. Ward's car behind it. When Mr. Ward entered, Charlie was in the kitchen pointing a rifle at his head. Again, Charlie insists the shooting of Mr. Ward was in self-defense saying that he grabbed for the rifle. Charlie tells the story that they grappled over the weapon several times running throughout the house, from the basement to the kitchen to the front door. But when Mr. Ward's body was found, it was lying near the entrance to the living room, as if he'd been shot down immediately upon arriving home. He'd been shot twice, once in the throat and once in the temple. The two women were found upstairs. Clara Ward lay in a room with two beds. She was lying on the floor between the beds, and they were pushed together, as if trying to conceal her body. She was wearing only a nightgown. She had been stabbed repeatedly, one knife wound in her back, and several wounds had been made as she faced her attacker. Lillian Fenkel was tied to the bed in a separate room with several stab wounds to her chest and stomach. She had fought her attacker and had several superficial wounds on her legs, arms, and hands. The three bodies were found, as was Bob Jensen's car, at about noon the following day, January 29th. The Ward's car, a 1956 Packard, was missing. Charlie would later say he'd only injured Mrs. Ward when he threw the knife at her back. He insisted that he left her alive tied to the bed. 
A polygraph taken later would seem to confirm the story that he'd left her upstairs on the bed, covered with a blanket and still alive. When he was asked about the two dead women, an investigator said he seemed genuinely surprised, asking, What do you mean? They were alive, weren't they? Now that even more bodies were found, all hell broke loose in Lincoln. 200 members of the Nebraska National Guard were mobilized, combing the streets in combat gear and in jeeps equipped with machine guns. There was a run on local gun dealers. One sold 40 guns in just two hours on the day the ward's bodies were found. But Charlie and Carol had finally made it out of town. They were headed due west of Lincoln, towards the Wyoming border. Charlie had used shoe polish to dye his easily recognizable red hair black. Carol had changed out of the plaid shirt that resembled the one she was wearing in the newspaper photo and was wearing a blouse and a jacket she'd taken from Mrs. Ward's closet. They soon heard reports on the radio about the wanted fugitives driving the Packard with the Nebraska plates. He knew they needed to ditch the car soon. Merle Collison was a 37-year-old traveling salesman. He had stopped on a road east of Casper, Wyoming, when he became too sleepy to keep driving. Charlie came upon the car and saw the sleeping man inside. The autopsy would conclude that Collison had been shot nine times. Two shots had gone through the window. The other seven fired after the door was opened. Charlie later would try to pin this shooting on Carol. He probably realized that shooting an unarmed man lying in a prone position would prohibit a self-defense claim and contradict his tough guy persona. In any case, the driver's dead body was pushed aside, and Charlie got into the driver's seat. Carol jumped into the back seat. He started the car, but try as he might, he could not release the parking brake. Minutes later, 29-year-old Joe Sprinkle passed them on the road on his way to Douglas, Wyoming. He saw two cars on opposite sides of the road. He didn't see anyone in the Packard, but as he passed, he saw a young girl sitting in the back seat of the Buick. He decided to stop and see if they might have been involved in a collision and swung back around. But as he approached, he saw a young man wrestling with the Buick's parking brake. Can I help you? Sprinkle asked. As he turned towards him, Charlie said, help me release this parking brake or I'll kill you. He had a rifle in his hand. This time, no lie, the guy actually did go for the gun. As Sprinkle reached past him, presumably to pull on the parking brake, he quickly grabbed at the gun barrel. They began a tug-of-war over the gun. Sprinkle weighed 180 pounds and stood six foot tall and was fighting for his life. Charlie hung on as well and was dragged out into the road, still tugging on the end of the gun. Moments later, a sheriff's patrol car came upon the strange scene. The deputy, Bill Romer, stopped several yards behind the car and got out. As he approached the two men fighting in the street, a young girl came flying out of the car and ran towards the deputy, crying, "'Take me to the police! He's killed a man!' "'Who?' the deputy asked. "'Charles Starkweather!' she cried. Upon hearing Carol yelling, Charlie looked up to see the police vehicle. He ran to his car, made a quick U-turn in the road, and hit the gas. The deputy grabbed the girl and quickly shoved her in his cruiser between himself and a second officer and took off after the fleeing vehicle. He called for roadblocks, saying he was in pursuit of the wanted fugitive. He drove for several miles, during which time Carol did a lot of talking. "'I seen him kill ten people,' Carol told them. He killed my mother, stepfather, stepsister, a boy and a girl, a farmhand, and three other people. I seen it all. Five miles west of Douglas, two deputies saw a Packard blow past them at over 100 miles per hour and took off in pursuit. They followed him into downtown Douglas, where Charlie was slowed down by traffic, dodging and weaving through intersections. 
Incredibly, they began shooting at the Packard's tires in full view of pedestrians. This was very like the shooting movies, as Charlie called them, that he was so fond of. When Charlie slowed a bit through an intersection, the officer saw his chance and rammed Charlie from behind, interlocking their bumpers. Charlie floored it, leaving his bumper behind. Now he headed out of town, and once out in the open, the sheriff leaned out of his window and began shooting at the Packard's back window. One of the bullets struck the window and shattered it. A minute later, the sheriff saw the Packard's brake lights come on. Charlie had stopped in the middle of the highway. He slowly exited his vehicle, walking towards the police cruiser. The sheriff and his partner were now crouched behind the doors, with their guns pointed at the fugitive. He kept walking towards them until one officer fired a warning shot at his feet. He raised his hands as they approached and cuffed him. Charlie was bleeding from the ear, apparently where flying glass from the windshield had nicked him. I'm shot, Charlie cried. You shot me. Later, the sheriff would say he thought he was bleeding to death. That's the kind of yellow son of a bitch he is. Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate were arrested and booked into the Converse County Jail. There were no facilities in the county for women, so Carol was housed in the sheriff's living quarters and watched over by the sheriff's wife, Hazel Heflin. Carol insisted that she had been a hostage the entire time. She would play up her innocent victim status to Mrs. Heflin, asking her if she'd heard from her family and wanting to know if they were okay. Carol acted shocked when she was told the following day that her family was dead. This was in direct contradiction to not only the statements she made to the officers who'd picked her up outside of Douglas, but to the newspaper clippings found in her pocket. Carol would never admit to being any part of the killings, but only taking the money from Robert Jensen's wallet and holding the gun on Carol King. That admission alone would seal her fate. Charlie was also pretty chatty once in custody. He would confess no less than seven times. Unfortunately, his story would change with each statement. At first, he would try to completely absolve his girlfriend of any wrongdoing, saying that Carol was at school when he'd committed the murders of her family. But later, after he found out Carol was claiming to be completely innocent and leaving him out to dry, he changed his story. Now he said Carol had been home when the killings took place and had even held a gun on her mother. He also implicated her in the murders of Clara Ward and Lillian Fenkel, as well as the murder of traveling salesman Merle Collison. The state of Wyoming charged Charles Starkweather with first-degree murder of Merle Collison, which would have brought a possible death sentence, except Wyoming's governor was a staunch opponent of the death penalty and had vowed to commute any death sentence to life in prison. However, he was not opposed to signing extradition papers for the accused murderer to be sent back to Nebraska and tried there. Charlie, not understanding the implications for extradition, thought he was being saved from the gas chamber in Wyoming. He signed the extradition papers grinning and saying, Wyoming uses the gas chamber and I don't like the smell of gas. On the way back to Nebraska, Charlie confessed to the murder of gas station attendant Robert Colbert, finalizing the body count to 11. The governor of Nebraska was waiting with open arms for the fugitive. Both Carol and Charlie were formally charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the death of Robert Jensen, premeditated murder and murder during the commission of a robbery. They were both to be tried as adults in separate trials. If found guilty, they could be put to death by electric chair. The prosecutor decided only to try them for this one murder and not the other nine murders committed in Nebraska or the host of other charges, including car theft and robbery. Strategically, it would give them the quickest and most assured outcome to put them away. They had confessions to the crime on record from both of them, and the prosecutor explained a person could only be executed once. 
trial of Charles Raymond Starkweather began on May 5, 1958. His court-appointed attorneys wanted to put on an insanity defense. That way, they explained, they might be able to save his life. Charlie refused. But the case they put on was clearly geared to convince the jury that Starkweather wasn't in control of his actions. Teachers, employers, and prison psychologists all testified that there was something not quite right with Charles Starkweather. Charlie scowled through the testimony he objected to and acted bored the rest of the time. His mother also testified, but said she didn't believe there was anything mentally wrong with her son. No, she said, the trouble with Charlie began when he met Carol Fugate. He was a different boy after that, she stated. Charlie himself took the stand in his own defense. This is almost unheard of today. Juries rarely hear from the accused themselves, unless there is a very compelling reason. Charlie would admit to killing some people, but, quote, only in self-defense, the ones I did kill, he said. He again stated that Carol had killed Carol King and shot and killed Merle Collison. His attorney read a letter to the jury that Charlie had written a few months earlier, where he'd called Carol the most trigger-happy person I ever met. After four days of testimony, the jury was dismissed to begin deliberations. The next afternoon, they came back with the verdict and sentence. In Nebraska during that time, both were decided by the jury at the same time. The verdict was guilty of first-degree murder. The sentence was death. On July 3rd, it was decided that Carol would stand trial as an adult. She would be the youngest female in American history to stand trial for first-degree murder. However, unknown to Carol at the time, the prosecutor would not be asking for the death penalty for Carol. Carol Fugate's trial began on October 27, 1958. The state knew her guilt or innocence would be determined by a jury who had to decide whether she was a hostage or a willing accomplice. All the state needed to prove was that she'd been a willing accomplice in the kidnapping and or robbery of Robert Jensen and Carol King that resulted in their murders. Deputy Bill Romer took the stand and blew away Carol's professed ignorance that her family had been killed. This was the reason, she had explained, that she went along with Charlie and didn't try to escape. Her story was that her family was gone by the time she had come home from school that day. Charlie had told her that she had to come with him. He had her family stowed away somewhere being watched by a family, and if she didn't want anything to happen to them, she had to do what he said. The story was ludicrous and nobody believed it especially after the deputy told the jury about Carol's statements that she'd seen Charlie, quote, kill 10 people and listed all the members of her family in that count. He also described how Carol was crying hysterically when she was first in custody. That is, until she learned that Charlie had been captured alive. After that, she stopped crying. Carol, the state explained, thinking Charlie would be gunned down and killed in the pursuit, as he'd always insisted to her that he wouldn't be taken alive, thought she'd be off the hook, if she played victim. But with Charlie alive, she knew that he might talk, and so she quit the act. The testimony also revealed that Carol had been left alone several times in which she could have escaped or alerted somebody and did nothing. Charlie himself was called to the stand. While Carol trembled and clenched her attorney's arm at the sight of him, the first time she'd shown emotion during the entire trial, Charlie did not even glance her way. So much for true love, he answered questions about all the times he'd left Carol alone during the week they were hiding out in her family's home. He also testified that Carol had held the gun on the teens, and it was her idea, he said, to take the money from Bob Jensen's wallet. They also asked Charlie about the statement he had made to the press that, if he ever went to the chair, he said, 
Carol should be sitting on my lap. Asked if he felt that way now, he answered, No, I don't. Now I don't care if she lives or dies. Carol was also called to testify. She took the stand, at first telling her tale of terror at the hands of Charles Starkweather for the jury under the direction of her attorney. But when questioned by the prosecution, Carol came off as angry and hostile. She then lost points with the jury when she tried to play dumb, requiring the prosecutor to ask the question three or four times before giving a vague answer. In his closing statements, the prosecutor acknowledged that it was unprecedented to convict an eighth grader for first-degree murder, and while he was not requesting a death sentence, he stressed, even 14-year-old girls must realize that they can't go on eight-day murder sprees. It took jurors a little over a day to decide her fate. Carol Ann Fugate was found guilty of first-degree murder committed during the commission of a robbery and sentenced to life in prison. No, Carol cried as the verdict was read. I'd rather be executed. Someday they're going to realize they made a mistake, she said as she was let out. Charles Starkweather's date with the electric chair was postponed and a stay of execution granted no less than four times. One stay was filed at the request of Carol Fugate, not because she was so interested in sparing her former boyfriend's life, but because she wanted to give him time to, quote, tell the truth so that she could be set free. It didn't work. Charlie would never say or write anything to help Carol. One stay was given only 90 minutes before he was scheduled to die. He'd already eaten his last meal when the federal court granted him the stay in order for Charlie to replace the attorneys he'd recently fired. But on June 22, 1959, the Supreme Court refused to review his case. It was the end of the road in the process, and there would be no more delays. Three days later, Charles Starkweather said goodbye to his family for the last time. He spent the day painting, a hobby he'd taken up in prison. The warden came for him at just before midnight to escort him to the death chamber. He did not struggle. He declined to have any of his own witnesses, as was permitted, but 35 witnesses from the media and the victim's families were on hand to see him die. The leather mask that would cover his face was placed on him, and the electrodes were attached to him behind a curtain. The curtain was then open for witnesses to view the condemned man strapped in the chair. The warden asked him if he had any last words. He shook his head no. The executioner threw the switch, sending 2,200 volts of electricity through his body. He was pronounced dead at 12.04 a.m. on June 25, 1959. Carol Fugate was sent to the York Correctional Institution for Women. She spent the first eight months in solitary confinement due to her age and her notoriety. She was required to attend school and chapel and completed her high school diploma. She also learned to type and became a public speaker as part of a prison program. Her attorneys filed several appeals for new trials and for a commutation of sentence, but they were denied. With all appeals exhausted in 1972, Carol filed to have her sentence commuted from life in prison to a finite number of years in hopes that then a parole date could be calculated. A year later, her life sentence was commuted to 30 to 50 years in prison, making her eligible for parole in 1976. On June 20, 1976, Carol was released on parole to Michigan. She had served 17 years and 7 months in prison and was 32 years old. She was assigned to work at a hospital. She completed her parole in 1981, making her free from any further restrictions. She remained living in Michigan. But Carol remained adamant about wanting to clear her name. 
She even decided to appear on a television program called Lie Detector in 1983. On the show, hosted by famed attorney F. Lee Bailey, she was subjected to a polygraph examination in which she was asked three questions. Did Charlie Starkweather threaten to kill her family? She answered yes. Did she believe his threat? She answered yes. While on the road with Charlie, did she know her relatives were dead? She answered no. The audience was then told that for two of the questions, it was believed she was telling the truth. They didn't specify which two questions. Carol said she felt vindicated. The public was not so sure. The Nebraska Attorney General was asked his thoughts about Carol's television appearance. He pointed out that Carol wasn't asked any specific questions about the murder that sent her to prison. She also wasn't asked if she killed anybody or if she helped Starkweather commit the crimes or if she ever had the chance to get away. They didn't ask her any of the pertinent questions, he said. The public seemed to side with the district attorney. When polled, 51% agreed that the lie detector didn't prove she wasn't an accomplice. 22% believed Carol was innocent, and 27% weren't sure either way. Almost seven years later, Carol would take it upon herself to mail over 200 copies of her trial transcript to random Lincoln residents. She said she'd taken this unusual step so that the people of Lincoln would know that her first confession was the true confession. Charlie Starkweather became the known outlaw he always hoped to be. Unfortunately, almost all of his celebrity happened long after he was dead. Versions of his story were told in several Hollywood movies, including Badlands in 1973, Natural Born Killers in 1994, and Starkweather in 2004. Stephen King followed the story in the newspapers when he was a child and wrote about a character he called The Kid in his novel The Stand, who was based on Starkweather. Bruce Springsteen's song, Nebraska, is an account of Starkweather's killing spree. In the early 2000s, Carol met a man named Frederick Clare in a casino. They got married, and Carol became stepmother to his sons. They moved to Ohio and liked to drive to casinos in Michigan to gamble. They were making one such trip on a rainy night in August of 2014 when their car veered off the road and flipped over. Frederick, who'd been driving, was killed. He was 81. Carol, 70 at the time, was airlifted to the hospital where she spent several months being treated for serious injuries. Frederick's sons are devoted to Carol and continue to care for her as they promised their father they would after he married her. Her stepson, Tommy Clare, said Carol shared her past with his father soon after they met. She told the truth, who she was, and what happened, he said. The boys also knew right away about Carol's past history. He says he now believes his stepmother is telling the truth, and he will continue to support her efforts to clear her name, including a book she wrote with her attorneys titled The Twelfth Victim that was published in 2014. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. We have one more chapter to go in Sweetheart Killers, and it's a doozy, so don't miss it. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now we have a Patreon account. If you want to support the show and get cool perks like merchandise, bonus episodes, and more, check it out and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash onceuponacrime. Thanks for your support. Until next time, be good to one another. From the town of Lincoln, Nebraska 
With a sawed-off 410 On my land Through the badlands Of Wyoming I killed everything in my See that I'm sorry for the things that we've done. At least for a little while, sir, me and her, we had a son. Joy brought in guilty verdict, and the judge sends me to death. Midnight in prison store, leather straps across my chest. Sheriff, when the man. That sweet sir, and snaps my poor head back. You make sure my pretty baby sitting right there on my. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience. And they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie dot com. That's A N G I dot com.